While these disciples were with Jesus and they were watching him, learning all the while, he was getting them involved in different ways to encourage them to express their faith in relevant ways. He gave them something to do, which brings now to our attention the principle of delegation. At first, the disciples really were expected simply to follow him, to be with him. This was an encouragement, though, to Jesus. Uh, sometimes I've gone out on the street and preached, but I don't ever go alone. I take along some of my students, and if no one else stops to listen, at least I can be assured that there are a few people that are with me that are there to help and encourage. I learned this from Jesus. The disciples were at least the nucleus of a little audience that could attract others also. Through the years, I've frequently taken students out on the streets to share their faith. It's probably one of the worst ways to do it, at least in our culture, but it's one of the best ways in other places, like in Africa, if you have some good music, someone that can beat the drum, some singing, or in South America, or even India, uh, you can get a crowd. And uh, the opportunity then for the disciples uh, to share their faith if the occasion arises. But Jesus was finding ways for the people that were with him to find a sense of participating in ministry. He didn't have a house of his own to live. He owned no property. So he just lived with his disciples and his friends. What a natural way to find a, uh, a place to stay. I haven't found anywhere in the Gospels where it tells me Jesus turned down an invitation to dinner. I was glad when I discovered that. What a beautiful way for somebody else to be the servant. You see, we have to find ways for other people to feel important, to do what they already are capable of doing. And this is what Jesus is doing all the time when his disciples are with him, and an opportunity comes for them to more directly get involved. I think of his return to Galilee after his first visit to Jerusalem. We read Jesus was preaching but the disciples were baptizing. Now that's interesting. If you follow the sequence, they haven't been ordained yet. I remember in my first uh, appointment as a pastor, it was a little circuit of three churches, and the one farthest away, I would preach at first on Sunday morning and then go to the next and finally in the evening the third. And uh, God was very gracious there in that church. Since uh, I would preach there first on Sunday morning, I would usually come in Saturday night. They didn't have a parsonage. They had rented it out, so it was understood I had to live in the community with the people, and they all knew my circumstances. I don't know of anybody, saint or sinner, that would have turned me down if I knocked on their door. Usually, I tried a week ahead to make some arrangement, but... Uh, I would usually 
began over in the area where I had my first service on Sunday morning. And uh, I developed some relationships. I found out if I'd get there early enough to help with the chores, uh, slop the hogs, shuck the corn, uh, help with the milking, why uh, the people would be appreciative. I'd, of course, always be invited to supper and then sit up half the night and visit. And just out of courtesy, uh, usually the farmer and his family would come to church on Sunday morning. I got a lot of sinners to come that way. And after a few months, some of them began to give some attention to the Word and got converted. And, of course, we wanted to have a baptismal service. And the word went out to my um, superintendent. And I remember that call, dear old Arnold Clegg called me up. And he said, uh, uh, Mr. Coleman, I've heard that you have announced a baptismal service Sunday afternoon. And I said, well, that is correct. We've had a revival. And uh, there are a number of people that want to be baptized. <clears throat> he gurgled his throat and he said, well, it's my duty to tell you, Mr. Coleman, you are not authorized to administer the Holy Sacrament. You haven't been ordained yet. You're not even a member of the conference. And uh, you'll not have the uh, authorization of the church if you do this. Well, you could have knocked me over with a feather. I hadn't read the fine print, I guess, and he was right. And I went in dutifully to the pastor of the big first church in the city of Cordon, Indiana, and got him to come out about eight or ten miles in the country to baptize my converts, all 25 of them. But you know, after that, I couldn't help but smile when I noticed Jesus had his disciples baptizing before they were ordained to preach. Now, I don't know who you are that are listening to this. You may already realize that if this applies in your situation, you're in trouble. And I'm not going to try to get into the rules of your church. I simply point out a principle. Get people involved. One way or another, everybody can have a sense that they are participating in ministry. Those disciples had been with Jesus for several months, and one day they had this great crowd that listened to him teach. He went a little over time, I suppose. It was the lunch hour, and he was still there teaching, and some of the people were complaining that they needed to get something to eat. So he told the disciples, well, take care of the problem. Go and get some food. And they confessed they didn't have the food. There was a little boy there that had a lunch with some bread and a few fish. That's all they could find. Jesus said, well, bring it to me. And he blessed the food. And then some way he got some baskets, gave each of the disciples a basket, then divided a portion of the bread and the fish in each basket and said, now you go and you feed the people. 
You know, there's two miracles here. One, which we all know, is the breaking of the bread and the fish, the miracle of, of that occasion. But the other miracle is those disciples who previously had confessed their total inability now went out and actually fed 5,000 people. Can you imagine? As they have this basket, here's a hungry person in front of them. They reach down there and break off a little crumb of bread and a portion, portion of that fish. And it seems like when they do that, the fish just grows back and the bread just goes back to its original form. Their eyes must have been as big as saucers for they are watching a miracle. No wonder that miracle is found in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, one of the few in all four of the Gospels. Those disciples never got over it. They had that inner sense that they participated in the miraculous work of Christ. Don't you think that made them feel important? They were doing something that actually contributed to the ministry of their Lord. They had been with Him probably a year and a half or two years when one day they stopped along the trail and He reminded them at the rate they were going they were not going to reach all the villages. But He says, I've got a little different program now. We're going to divide up and you will go to some of these places where I haven't yet gone. I imagine it scared those disciples to death. They had never done it this way on their own before. But He assured them, now you won't go by yourself. We'll team up. We always work together. You remember? So they went out in pairs of two. And He told them, I want you to do just what you have watched me do. You come into this village, you heal the sick, you cast out the demons, and you preach the gospel of the kingdom. Now, this was what Jesus had been doing. You could expect the disciples to follow that example. And Something else He had demonstrated, though it had not been so clearly enunciated until now. When they went into this village, they were to look for the most worthy family. And that was to be the place where they would stay. This means someone who has enough interest in your mission, they will open their home and provide hospitality. Now, during the day, you can work out in the community, you can evangelize all these different homes, but at night, you come back to this same house. You kick off your sandals, you sit down at the table, you talk about what's happened during the day, you laugh, you sing, you build a relationship. So that when finally you leave this community, at least there'll be one home. They'll know a little bit more about it. Why, it could be the beginning of a new Bible study or a church plant. But suppose after they've covered the whole community, haven't left anyone out, they can't find a single person 
that will provide hospitality. No one will invite them in. What are they to do then? You remember? I know this has implications I've not fully thought through, but I know what he told them to do. If you can't find a worthy person, shake the dust off your feet. Go to the next village. We haven't got time just to go through the programs when no one is being discipled. And this is the priority that you have in mind even before you begin. Who's going to follow up the fruit of the harvest? Who's going to be there to continue to lead these people on who've expressed a desire to learn? Unless you can provide that kind of help, what you're doing may result later on in a tragic failure. And the last state will be worse than the beginning. Sometimes these worthy people are called today a person of peace. It's really the key to church planting that's observed in many parts of the world today where if you find a person who is accepted as a leader in that community or a person who has a, an, a vision of what can happen and who will commit themselves to it and will take some responsibility, that person then has ways to reach out to others and that's the simplest way to actually begin a new church. But he's teaching us again. You've got to give attention to your objective, which is to reach the world. And you don't do this by just gathering a crowd or just having a nice visit and being given the acclaim of a great speaker or even having a big program. You do it by making disciples. And that's the way you will assure ultimately accomplishing your objective. Now, this is going to involve, Jesus said, hardship. What they have done to me, he said, don't be surprised if they do also to you. But remember, too, that there is a day of rejoicing in the resurrection. And after that had come to pass, and he met with the disciples in the glory of his resurrection body, he emphasized again that goal, that objective. As the Father sent me, he said, now I'm sending you into the world. You go and you preach the gospel to every creature. You go as my witnesses. Start where you are, but keep moving on till you reach the ends of the earth. You go and make disciples of all nations. So the Great Commission becomes finally His last command. The command to the church where everyone has a part and where all of us, in some way, enter into ministry. I like this way of bringing ministry down to every person who is a believer. We, we call it, theologically, the priesthood of all believers. And this was one of the great 
doctrines that was brought into great attention in the Reformation. Prior to that, it had been generally thought that to really have an effective confession, you had to go through an intermediary. You would go and confess to the priest, and he would then give absolution. But the people were not given the Bible to read and study on their own. It was largely entrusted to the church. But now Luther and the other reformers were saying, no, everyone is to be involved. When we come to Christ, we all enter into the ministry which belongs to His whole body, the church. So we're all priests. And that affected a tremendous revolution in church policy across Europe and is spread across the world so that Protestants today are known by that doctrine. And we have done well in insisting that we're not just justified by faith alone without works. We also have done well in insisting that everybody has the privilege of prayer directly to heaven. You don't have to go through someone else. But in the other dimension of priesthood, toward our fellow man, we have far more to learn. And this is why we've got to take a new look at the Great Commission, which brings ministry down to the level where everybody, every day, can obey the command of Christ. Everybody through whatever gift they have, whatever they're calling, can make disciples. It's not a special gift or call. It is a lifestyle. It is the priesthood of all believers. And we will labor in the way that God has made us and gifted us. Out in West Texas, they have a riding academy that advertises they have a horse to suit everyone's taste. You may have heard of it. They advertise that for fat people, they have fat horses. For skinny people, they have skinny horses. For fast people, they have fast horses. For slow people, they have slow horses. And for people that don't know how to ride at all, they've got horses that have never been ridden before. Now, I don't know what your taste is, but there's a horse you can ride. More to the point, there's a horse everybody in the church can ride. And if you are a leader, it's your business to help the follower find his or her horse. That's how the priesthood of all believers comes into reality. Now, certainly we can share our testimony. And for this reason, those that are with you, help them learn how to articulate what God has done in their life in a very simple and natural way so that their testimony just seems to flow out of their life. Don't just assume that everybody will do this unless you give them some encouragement. And all too often, testimonies that I hear are kind of cut and dried and boring and filled with a lot of theological jargon that most people wouldn't comprehend. 
and they're too long. You ought to be able to give your testimony in two or three minutes. How you came to Christ, how the gospel was received and understood, and the difference that is made in your life as you have tried to live now for Christ. And maybe weave into it some personal experience or some blessing that God has brought into your family. But make it fresh and something that just seems to be spontaneous on the occasion. It's kind of hard to tailor-make testimonies because they have to come authentic from you in your own experience. But everybody can give a testimony and learn how to share their faith. One of the more natural ways, of course, is at the dinner table. I've already mentioned how the family is a way of having worship together and it's also a way you can witness together and how you might agree to memorize a Bible verse together and you can tell how this verse has meant something to you and you can let someone else share how it has meant something to them. We learn there around the table. Of course you can get involved in other ways of following up new believers. This is something that all new Christians need. They need someone to get close to them, preferably uh, near their same age and uh, their same sex, and who can be there to answer their questions, inquire how they're coming along in their, their prayer life. Maybe you've had a little Bible study that you've let them go through. Most churches have some kind of a program like that, and you can answer any questions that are in their mind. And you're there, of course, in time of sickness. And if they're not in church or some meeting that you expected them to be present, uh, you're, of course, going to be checking up on them to find out what the reason would be. Don't let anything linger too long without having some contact. And this kind of follow-up, everyone who is a new believer needs. You shouldn't have anyone come into the church without that personal attention given by someone in a very definite and personal way. There are other ways you can get involved. Like in the Sunday school, at first maybe you just are observer. But gradually as you make comments and people can see some of your giftedness in teaching, you may be asked to become a teacher of a new Sunday school class and help in that way. Beautiful way for a person with a teaching gift to be involved. Maybe you're not a gifted teacher, but you are a gifted helper, that gift of hospitality. And so you can open your home, and the people can come in, and, and you will provide the warm welcome and the facility for them to meet, maybe some refreshment. Someone else may be the teaching. I think my wife has this gift of hospitality. Uh, she is not a, a public speaker. At, at least she doesn't seek opportunities to speak in public. Now I have on occasion been asked to speak to my wife so that she would share out of her experience and usually reluctantly she will agree. And about two or three weeks before the time she will start worrying about it and she will even write out what she's going to say and then at first uh, she would like to go over it with me 
And I might make a comment, well, I think maybe that's a little strange, that the way you expressed it there. And then she would say, well, that's the trouble. Every time I do something, you find something wrong. Well, I have learned my lesson. I never make a comment now. It's always good, whatever she says. And actually, she's a very gifted speaker. And then people come around and say, well, why didn't you have your wife speak earlier? But admittedly, this is not her special gift. And when you're working against your gift, there is kind of a stiffness. You kind of have to force yourself. And often we are in situations where we have to do things we're not specially gifted for. But it's part of the job. But when you're working in the area of your giftedness, it flows naturally. There's no pressure to force your way through. It just seems to fulfill you with joy. We all have different gifts. And we need to help people find where they are gifted and how they can fit in and how they can make a contribution. Doesn't have to be, though, through the church, so the church should provide many different ways for people to get involved. But more likely it'll be in their home or in their neighborhood, maybe being a Boy Scout leader or helping in some kind of a of a, a drive to collect for uh, some charity or maybe just being there in the community to visit someone who is lonely. Oh, there's so many ways we can find expression of ministry. But as I've said, everyone in the church is involved. And a church that is moving is a church that finds ways for people to have a sense of importance in ministry. So you make assignments. More specific, the better. And where they are gifted, especially. Notice that. Call it to their attention. Sometimes a person may not be aware of how gifted they are. And so you have noticed it. And you can talk about it. Those first duties might be just routine tasks where they're already qualified. They're far beyond you. Certainly one of my weaknesses is what I see demonstrated here by Casey. I don't have a gift for technology or working on the computer. My grandkids know more about the computer than I do. I'm embarrassed to admit it, but I'm certainly not gifted, and I'm often overwhelmed with problems that I get myself into by hitting the wrong button. But thankfully, there are other people in the church that know a lot more about it. And this is a beautiful way they can find expression and a tremendous help in ministry. We're discovering in missions today that those who have the skills of technology in computer uh, programming are at a minimum. I serve on the board of OMS, and I remember a few years ago we were changing our whole uh, system with computers, putting a new system in, but we didn't have a first-rate program designer in the mission. These were all people out on the field, busy working. They were so busy, none of them had really had the time to master the art of computer technology. And you know what we had to do? We had to go out on the open market and hire a computer programmer. And that's not cheap. Those people are in demand. 
But oh, what a need we have in our missions today for people that have that ability to use modern technology. And this is getting more complicated all the time. Most veteran missionaries have not been able to keep up with it. We've got to get some younger people in there who know this, this science and can help the older missionaries get through. A routine task that needs to be competently handled. As people grow, though, in their ability and they feel more, more confident, more fulfilled in what they're doing, give more demanding ministries. As you move along, you will discover that one job fulfill opens up the possibility of a greater ministry in another ministry, another way. This can help them move into leadership roles in the church, becoming deacons or elders. There'll be some who will actually have a special call of God for cross-cultural ministry in overseas assignments. And thankfully, we need more who have that, that call, who can go into a different culture, not just learn the language, but also learn the culture and know how effectively to operate. We need those kind of people today. But let me say again, just because you do not have that special call to go overseas and minister, in a different culture doesn't excuse you from the Great Commission. Traveling around the world is not what we're told to do. We're to go the world. But if distance is what qualifies, you would have to exclude Jesus. So far as we know, the longest journey he ever took was about 125 miles from the place where he was born. Just traveling around the world is not the command, though we are great, grateful for those who can do this and have that skill and that commitment. In the same way, you don't have to be a clergyman. You don't have to be authorized as a, a designated missionary or special evangelist or pastor. It's interesting, the word clergy in the New Testament comes from the word kleros, which translates either inheritance or heir. And when it's used in reference to the church, everybody who is a part of the church is an heir of Christ, and they come into his inheritance. Strictly from the New Testament, every person is a clergy, man or woman. Now, I know where we began to make differentiations. I have studied history. I know how, as we moved into the second century, we began to dis distinguish between the person who was given official leadership role in the church was more designated as the clergyman. Unfortunately, this created a distinction in ministry so that the other people were not considered officially as ministers. That belonged to those who were specially in roles of prominence. And again, thankfully, the Reformation 
was addressed to that problem, but it still lingers now in the church, and many people are excusing themselves from the Great Commission on the ground that they haven't been properly trained, they haven't gone to seminary or Bible school, they're not on even the missions committee of the church, and therefore about all they can do is pray and give to the missionaries. And while we're grateful for that, and certainly that is necessary, we've got to understand that the Great Commission is a command to the whole church. Every believer, everyone has this principle of doing what God has called us to do wherever we live every day. And the Great Commission is that command of a lifestyle, making disciples, which puts excitement now into everything that we're doing. So that nothing is outside the perimeter. Nothing doesn't have significance. I was sharing earlier my dear mother, who was, when she was a child, uh, very much interested in missions. She, in fact, said she felt like she would like to be a missionary someday, but she grew up and got married. It didn't work out that way. And she and Dad spent most of their life down there in Texas. We didn't have a lot uh, of the uh, conveniences of, of the world. We didn't ever own a new car. We never went on an official vacation. We visited the kinfolks. But the beautiful thing was we didn't know we were poor because everybody we knew were in the same shape. But Mom, she was a world Christian. She was always talking about the missionaries. And her favorite meeting of the church was the Ladies' Missionary Society that would meet in our house on occasion. And I can remember times when they would bring their, their quilting frames into our living room and they would set them up. It would cover the whole room. And they would sit around and as they quilted, they would visit and talk and then when the quilt was finished, they would sell it, give the money to missions, or perhaps even send the, the quilt to a familiar missionary. Mom was always talking about a lady in the church that grew up there that had gone to India. She knew her by name and knew the family. And the Missionary Society was her favorite meeting of the month. And the last thing Mom said when she died in the arms of my sister, Joy, be sure my missionary pledge is paid up. You know, when you live in that context every day, it'll rub off on you. The Great Commission is a part of our lifestyle. We all should be a part of the global church and it's world evangelism from beginning to end. And this is the goal to which we're moving that is always certain, no matter where we may be along on the journey, we know we're a part of it. And someday we will be there when it's finished. We'll celebrate together. Until then, though, Let's be faithful to where God has planted us, for we all have something to do.
we've been delegated this responsibility.